Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about the formation of eggs. It starts off with the yolk, which would be the embryo inside the chicken, and then a shell forms around it inside the chicken. But there are stages to the formation of the shell. And so at first, the shell is very soft. And all these things have implications in terms of Jewish law. There's a certain point where the actual outside of the egg hardens and becomes the shell that we're all familiar with. But there's a process through which that gets formed. Now, why am I talking to you about eggs? Because that process is parallel to the creation of the universe itself. So it is in terms of the progression of the light of creation. The light becomes thicker. Isn't that a strange idea? Thick light. But the light actually becomes thicker until that light actually becomes so thick or compacted that it expresses itself as materiality. Now this, of course, you'll recognize as the process of Simpson, but this is just another way of visualizing it. During the plague of darkness, the darkness was so thick, it was so palpable, that it says that the Egyptians couldn't rise from their chairs for three days. Can you imagine? We're not used to thinking of light as having thickness. And yet, ultimately, it does. And it becomes thicker and thicker until it becomes materiality itself. One of the big ideas that I've tried to get across during these talks is that all materiality is, is compact energy or compacted spirituality. So it's one continuous line. The universe is one. God is one. Like I like to say, God is not an idea in your head. You are an idea in God's head, and God doesn't have a head. So anyway, why am I talking to you about the inside and the outside? A human being also has an inside and an outside. That's your soul. That's your inside. Your outside is your body. The universe, so to speak, has an inside and an outside. Now, I'll tell you something mind-blowing. This is from the Eish Kodesh, right? The, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto. He says, do you know what the outermost garment of God is? Then That's a very interesting idea, right? What is the outermost garment of God? And the answer is the Jewish people. And a phenomenally deep idea, phenomenally deep idea. And that's why it's so important for us to really be upright. Because a lot of people, when they see us, they're making up their mind about how do they feel about God. Isn't that interesting? And it's not a la- rational, necessarily, process. It's a very intuitive process. But that's why it's so important for us to be a light unto the nations. 
because a lot of people are experiencing how they feel about God through us, because we are the outermost garment. So that's a very big privilege, but it's also a very big responsibility. Okay, so this idea of the inside and the outside is a very powerful organizational principle in terms of understanding your life, yourself, reality, all of the rest. Because everything has an inside and everything has an outside. So even the mitzvot themselves, a mitzvah has an inner light to it, but it also has an outer aspect to it. Let's think of matzah for a moment. You're supposed to eat it on Passover, right? So that's the outer side of it. But there's an inner light to matzah. There's an inner light to tefillin. There's an inner light to the Shabbos candles, right? What's so amazing about the Shabbos candles is that inner light then shines through the physicality of its outer self. So the, the, the light that's within the candles actually gets translated to outside the candles. So that's, that's interesting in and of itself. But everything has an inside and an outside, the universe, the human being, mitzvahs themselves. And now I want to progress the conversation. Why am, I, why am I talking about all of this right now? And the answer is because we just read Parshas Mishpatim. Parshas Mishpatim has all of the civil laws in it, or a lot of the civil laws, all the person-to-person laws. And what's so striking about it, and what it occurs to me is, last week, we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, right? That was the, that was the amazing, the amazing once-in-history revelation where, remember what Rabbi Edin Steinsold said, that for thousands of years, people were speaking to God. At Mount Sinai, God spoke back. So now listen to this. What I want to say is the following. Parshas Yisro is the inside Parshas Mishpatim is the outside. All right? Parshas Yisro is that explosive soul experience that we have at Mount Sinai where God says, I am. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. That's the mitzvah to believe in God, according to the Rambam. Okay? God announces his presence and the fact that he is the totality of creation and beyond creation. Remember, the Medrash says that when God spoke at Mount Sinai, there was no echo to his voice. Now, the Lubavitcher Rebbe gives a beyond brilliant explanation of that Medrash. What does it mean when God spoke at Mount Sinai, there was no echo? Because what's the science of an echo? Sound waves bounce off of something, like when you yodel in the Alps, right? Your yodeling bounces off, those sound waves bounce off another mountain, and then they create this echo. That's how an echo works. But listen to this. When God spoke, there is nothing in the universe other than God. So what, is, <laughs> what are his sound waves going to bounce off of? Nothing because it's all God. The entire universe is God. Do you understand? 
So there's nothing to bounce off of, therefore no echo. Okay, so that is Parshas Yisro. That is the inside, the inside of the inside of the inside, right? That's the person-to-God relationship. Okay, now we have Parshas Mishpatim, which are all the civil laws, the person-to-person mitzvahs. That's the outside. Do you understand? Do you see that dynamic? And that's going to bring us to the fact that Parshas Mishpatim begins famously with the letter Vav. Now, the letter Vav is a connector. In Hebrew grammar, Vav means and, okay? It, it connects two things. So there are a lot of people who think that kind of like God is their own private business, their own private affair. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. There's Believe it or not, you know, we, talk, we, we, we know about all the famous Greek philosophers, right? Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, right? There were schools of philosophy in ancient Greece, which we study to this day. And what's maybe less well known is that the rabbis, they used to meet regularly with the top rabbis of the period of the Talmud, so you're really talking about the awesome representation of the Jewish people and Jewish thought. I mean, the sages of the Gomorrah they were meeting with, and they would have debates with them. Isn't that interesting? And many of the debates that the ancient Greek philosophers with the rabbis are recorded in the Talmud itself. Now, this incident that I'm about to tell you is one of those things that's recorded food and wine was being served. And during that debate, two of the Greek philosophers get into a fight with each other and one murders the other. And the rabbis are like, what is going on? And they ask, we're talking about like the most exalted things. And you murdered someone like during this conversation? And the Greek philosopher responded in the following way. Listen to this. It's, it's really quite devastating. He says, we're only philosophers when we're philosophizing. Right? Like, we, we stopped. We, we stopped to take a break. I mean, this is not a Jewish idea at all. This is not a Jewish idea at all. That you're, you're, you're religious while you're doing a mitzvah, but between mitzvahs, you're not like, or you're, re, you're religious when you're in shul, but when you're not in shul. If you want to do existence the way the Torah has in mind, the way we understand God wants from us, our relationship with God is a totally immersive experience. We're not just philosophers when we're philosophizing. We're not just Jewish when we're Jewishing. <laughs> so this is the idea of the Vav, the letter Vav, which means and, coming between this exalted, epic, spiritual, transcendent experience that was the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai and everyday life. Like a vav is a straight line. If you want another visual, you can almost think of it as a baton. A baton is being handed, 
right from Mount Sinai to us in our everyday life, and that's Parshas Mishpatim, the next Parsha following Parshas Yisro, which talks about the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And that's the inside as it blossoms into the outside. It's one continuous experience. Remember, all the people that we meet in our life and all the events that we have in our life, that is an ongoing conversation that God is having with us, right? So if someone says something nice to you, wow, that God wanted to give you more strength at that moment or just openly express his love. If something gets challenging for you, then that could be God talking to you and saying, hey, what's going on? You know, you got to fix X, Y, or Z in your life. Remember the Rambam says that anyone whose circumstances starts to fall, like things go south, as they say, that it's an act of cruelty for a person not to investigate their own actions to figure out why there was a downturn. Now, sometimes there's no obvious answer because maybe you're doing everything right, as far as you know, and it could just be a test or it could be a soul cleansing. And it's actually a display of love that God is doing. Now, it may not be our first choice, like maybe God show me some love through some cash. (laughs) I'd love some cash. Show me that kind of love, right? Well, sometimes that happens, but sometimes it, it happens another way. But everything ultimately is that expression of love, but, but it's ongoing. The ideas, the people that we encounter in our life, the circumstances we encounter in our life, these are all ongoing conversations with God. And it's all kind of structured in this way, Parshish Yisro into Parshish Mishpatim, the inside going into the outside, the soul going into the body, right? That, that historical experiencing blossoming out so that we transform all of society. All of these parallel tracks are going on at the same time. I heard something wonderful. I was at a bar mitzvah a couple of weeks ago, and the rabbi gave a blessing to the bar mitzvah boy. And he said, you know, because the boy's 13, and this rabbi was probably in his late 80s or something like that, like really, and just a, a holy rabbi. And he said, you know, maybe you'll be a leader. Like it would really be something if you were a leader. And then he said, you know what? But we really need good followers. He said, there aren't enough good followers out there. And then he kind of continued and he developed it in both directions. But I thought that that was really striking. You know, we talk about the the Rebbe's, the great Hasidic masters, a lot in these talks. And they were truly awesome individuals, realized individuals. But do you know how awesome, how many awesome Hasidim there were? And people who were so egoless, people, many of whom could have been great Rebbe's on their own, and in their own way were great Rebbe's on their own. Really, I, I know for a fact of many examples of this but we're so beyond and we're so humble, gave up this mantle of leadership and just like subsumed themselves as followers. But there was, there's so much greatness in, in, in who the Hasidim have been 
And, you know, just to give one example. But the idea is, can your body be a beautiful chassid of your soul, which is the Rebbe? Can you make your body into an authentic follower, an authentic, exalted chassid of your soul, which is the Rebbe? That's the idea. So in Parshas Mishpatim, we also learn about the half shekel. That's how it fell out this year. We've got four special readings on the way to Pesach, on the way to Passover. And we did the first one this, this past Shabbos, where every, every Jew would give half of a shekel. And it's so deep, this idea of half a shekel in terms of a census, because we don't count people. Because the Torah says people are not numbers. Once you start counting people, you can turn them into statistics and you can rob them of their humanity. And then all of a sudden, lives are kind of being written off with strokes of pencils, right? Because people just become numbers. So we can never allow people to become numbers. So when we take a census, we don't point a finger at the person and go one, and then point a finger at another person, say two, and then three. So in the Torah, the way they counted them is everyone would give half of a shekel, this ancient coin. In fact, the modern Israeli currency, like America has dollars, and in Israel, to this day, they have shekels. Pretty amazing, actually. So every person would give half a shekel. Now, the idea of half a shekel is, I am not complete without God. Or I am not complete without you. Right? We need each other. Like, how are we thinking? My soul is not complete with my body, and my body is not complete without my soul. And then if you want to think of Parshas Yisro as being the inside, and Parshas Mishpatim as being the outside, and we started with these half shekels with Parshas Mishpatim, we can say the outside is the visible part of the half a shekel, And Parshas Yisro, which stands for God, right? That's the unseen other half of the shekel. So it's very, very deep. And I'll just tell you one more thing because it's so awesome. There are many reasons given for why the Red Sea split. One explanation is because the same Hebrew word that's used for the splitting of the sea is also used when Avraham split the wood for the binding of Isaac. For the Akedah. So they say in the merit of Avraham splitting the wood, that's what split the sea. That's one explanation. Another explanation is when Nachshon, the head of the tribe of Judah, jumped into the water, right? Just faith that God was going to save us. And that's what split the sea. That's another teaching. There's another teaching, which is that when the sea saw the bones of Yosef, The sea split. Why? The sea went against its nature in honor of Yosef, who was able to overcome his nature. That's another amazing teaching. But maybe in its own way, the most amazing teaching is the following. That the sea split in the merit of the half shekel that we were going to bring in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle. Remember, that was the prototype for the Beis Migdash, the Holy Temple. 
And so that same word, beka, which is the half a shekel, is the same word for the splitting of the sea. Now let's think about that for a moment. You mean the sea split in the merit of a deed that I hadn't done yet? <laughs> you hear how unbelievable that is? The sea split in the merit of something that God knew I was going to do. And that's one of the expressions of divine love. And one of the ways that God runs the world is that he looks at not just what we're doing and not just what we've done, but those good things that we're going to do and then he already counts them in our merit in the present tense and will even use that merit that we haven't achieved yet to create miracles in our life. So let me just tell you something deeper. This is really unbelievable. It's so beautiful, I think. You see, the Medrash says that God offered the Torah to other nations before he offered it to us. And they wanted a, like a little bit of reassurance before they just said yes outright. And God said, well, it says don't steal. And they're like, ah, that's kind of, kind of a deal breaker. And then the other asks, what, what's in it? And they say, God says, don't murder. And they're like, ah, that's, that's going to be kind of tough. So, so they both say no. Now here's where the Torah starts. What test did God give to the Jewish people? And the test was, God said, I'm putting a border around Mount Sinai. You can come this close when I reveal the Torah, but you can't come closer. Our desire is just to be so close, so close, so close. The test was God was saying, you know what? If you accept the Torah, you're going to have to understand the following. You're only going to understand me a certain amount. You can come this close, but you can't get any closer. Are you willing to engage in a relationship with me, which will even include putting up your life without fully, fully understanding me? Do you trust me and love me enough? And we said yes. We said yes. And that's, boy, that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? How can you not be thinking of the Kutzker Rebbe's famous words right now? I would never serve a God I understood completely. Right? Because if you understand God completely, then you're also God. So what do you need God for? In other words, one of the premises of God is that you can never fully understand him. See, this is something that a lot of people don't understand or accept. They want to say, okay, I'm on board, but if I don't understand it, then, mm, then I'm not on board. But if you're talking about God who made your brain, how can your brain, which is finite, fully grasp the infinite? The premise of God is that we'll never fully understand him. Only God fully understands God. 
So that's the idea of the border around the mountain. You see, what's so interesting about idol worship is that the sages say that idol worship really is about a person worshiping themselves, not the idol. Isn't that interesting? They pick the idol. They carry the idol around with them. Right? So really, it's a little more complicated than it seems. It says that when Paro dreamed, remember the Nile River was an idol. And it says that when Paro relates his dream about the seven cows, the seven fat cows being swallowed by the seven thin cows and the seven fat stalks being swallowed by the seven thin stalks, but by the Nile, it says that, he, that, that Paro was standing al, ayin lamed, on the Nile. Now, al means above. So what is Paro doing above his idol, which is the Nile River? Because really, idol worship is about <laughs> the worship of self because you are putting yourself above that idol. The psychology, the psycho-spirituality of idol worship, it's very corrupt. It's very, very corrupt. It's not just misguided, it's corrupt in its essence. Because there is a refusal of an acknowledgement on the deepest level to recognize that there's something that's truly beyond you. It's just another tricky way to get what you want. I'll tell you something awesome from the Ishbitzer Rebbe. Before the Kahanim, right, who served in the base of Migdash, the Holy Temple, before the Kahanim would go and lead the, the Karbonos, the, the offerings and everything like that, before they entered into the building or into the tent, they had to wash their hands. And the Ishbitzer Rebbe says the following. He says they were washing their hands of the idea of what I am about to do is just so you'll do for me. They wanted to get rid of the idea of self-interest being the foundation of their service. So they washed their hands of the notion that what we are about to do in the Holy Temple, your divine service, is just so you will do for me. Isn't that awesome? And I'll tell you another kavana based on this that Reb Shlomo said about washing your hands for bread, right? Because what does bread stand for? For livelihood, for parnosa, right? So when you wash your hands before bread, it's a very holy to have in mind. You have in mind, I am washing my hands of the notion that the bread that I am about to eat is the product of the work of my own hands. I'll say it again. You wash your hands of the notion that the bread that I am about to eat is the product of the work of my own hands. And that way, you're ready to receive directly from God. Okay? Rabbi Wolfson added mathematics to this thought. A holy gematria. Are you ready for this? The blessing that we make 
when we wash our hands, says, Okay? Nitilat yadayim, which means the raising of the hands. That's, remember, when we wash our hands, we're raising our hands because we're, we're raising them to receive from God. Okay? We're not, it's not a hygienic thing. Okay? It's a, it's a ritual thing. It's a holy thing. So, al, so nitilat yadayim, the raising of the hands, you ready for this? Is gematria lechem mina shamayim, bread from heaven. In other words, when we wash our hands of the notion that the bread that we're about to eat is a product of the work of our hands, then we're able to receive bread from heaven. We can receive the bread straight from God. Isn't that awesome? Awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay, so now let's get back to this idea of Parshas Mishpatim and the test after the test. Remember, Parshas Yisro is the inside, Parshas Mishpatim is the outside. Parshas Yisro is that explosive soul experience. Remember when God spoke at Mount Sinai, our souls flew out of our bodies, and then he brought us all back to life, and then he spoke again, and our souls flew out of our bodies again, and then he brought us back to life again. And then what did we say? Okay, Moshe, you get the, you get the other 611 commandments. Because... <laughs> You know, it's okay. It's, it's all good. It's all coming from God. And remember, one of the things that we saw when our souls left our body was that the Torah doesn't just exist in this dimension. The Torah exists in all of the dimensions. Okay? Remember, because the world itself is made out of Torah. Okay. So Yisro is the inside of the Torah. Mishpatim, right? It starts with the letter Vav. That's the baton, that's the handoff from the inside to the outside. Mishpatim is going to be talking about what do we do with our body? How do we treat each other? Not just our relationship with God, but how do we, how do we treat each other? In other words, we're not just philosophers when we're philosophizing. We're not just, you know, Jews when we're doing mitzvahs. It's an ongoing thing. So it's going to have to permeate. This consciousness is going to have to permeate, permeate into all of our outside actions. And that's Parshas Mishpatim. That's all of the civil laws. Okay, very good. And now I want to say the following. Mishpatim has the word mishpat in it. Mishpat means a judgment. Like a judge makes a judgment. So after Yisro, you have a mishpat. A judgment is on us. What is the judgment on us? And now this is the test after the test. Oh, you got the Torah? Did you really get the Torah? Oh, you got the Torah. You got, oh, you are at Mount Sinai. You got the Torah. Did you really get it? We'll see. We'll see if you really got it. And now we have the context for understanding the first mitzvah in Parshas Mishpatim. And it has to be introduced in this way because it is a very surprising first mitzvah. The laws of the Evid Ivri translated as the Hebrew slave. Now, the ancient institution of servitude is very different from the ancient institution of slavery, 
where one was a slave for life and was total property and could be beaten to death and there was no respect for life, which, you know, continued more or less to the modern day. You know, slavery was, was more or less that same thing. So when we talk about the Evid Ivri, it was the Torah concept of slavery or servitude is very different. And, and I'll just give you a couple of halachas to tell you how it's different so that we can understand that we're really talking about a, a completely different concept right now. The Hebrew servant was someone who stole and didn't have a way of repaying his debt. And so now he was going to indenture himself in order to pay back his debt. He was going to work off the money that he owed. That's the idea. Now, sometimes it was also for someone who was very, very poor and who just needed a way to make cash. And so, you know, this was the job he decided to take. But more often than not, it was really talking about someone who owed money who stole. And Rashi says that's the context for this mitzvah right here. Now, the Zohar says something very, very deep, but I really want to get to what the Baal Shem Tov says. But let's just say what the Zohar says quickly. So I heard this from Reb Shlomo. Why are we talking about the Hebrew slave or the thief right after we got the Torah at Mount Sinai? And this is beyond, beyond, beyond. You ready for this? Because when Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge without permission, they were stealing. And after getting the Torah at Mount Sinai, the first thing that we're doing is we're fixing the entire world. And we're going all the way back to the source, the eating of the tree of knowledge without permission. And now we're learning how to rectify that. Isn't that awesome? That's, that's awesome. That is awesome. But I want to tell you what the Baal Shem Tov says. <clears throat> and again, why is this the Hebrew slave? And let me again tell you how this institution in the ancient world, in the Torah context, was so different from how we tend to think about slavery. Two, two quick halachas on it. One is that if there was only one pillow in the household, the master has it and the servant has it, right? There's only one pillow to be had. The master has to give it to the evidivri. Isn't that interesting? And the, another is they had to eat the same quality of food. So from those two things, immediately you see that we're talking about a completely different institution here, okay? And of course, the person couldn't be physically abused. If, if the person was missing a tooth or an eye because of a beating, they had to be set free and they had to be financially compensated for that. In fact, this is a very important piece of information to know because a lot of times people will slander the Torah by quoting this line, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that is conveyed as justice enacted in its most tribal, primitive sense, right? You poked out my eye, I'm going to poke out your eye, right? That's like, 
well, it sounds like justice, but it also just sounds like just violent, you know, constricted consciousness, you know, masquerading as justice. So, so that's not what the Torah means at all. And if you look at the Talmud's explanation of those words, what it means is if someone loses an eye because of the abuse of the master, and that person is a, let's say, a ditch digger, well, he has to be financially compensated for how much income he's going to lose from, from the loss of an eye. Now, if someone is a brain surgeon and loses an eye because of that type of recklessness, well, the financial compensation is going to be much more substantial. So in other words, what we see here is not only isn't it primitive, but the idea of workmen's compensation and in this enlightened application of it for the individual sense is actually an incredibly advanced idea. And that's what the Torah is communicating. So again, it's just a reminder to us, if we learn the verses of the Torah without learning the Talmudic explanations, remember the Talmudic explanations are God's own explanations of the passages of the Torah. So if we're learning the Torah without the rabbi's explanation, which ultimately comes from God's own explanation of what these verses mean, then we're in la-la land. This is the unique relationship of the Jewish people and the Bible and the Torah, because we have God's explanation of what these verses mean. That's what, that's what distinguishes our understanding of divine will from the other nations of the world, even the other nations which have a very sincere and high respect for the text. But if they lack the explanations for the text, then they're just making stuff up. Do you understand? There's another example of this, which is it says in the Torah, that the slave, the Hebrew slave, has to be freed after the seventh year. Now, if it turns out the slave kind of, kind of got married and had some kids and, you know, has what he feels is a pretty good life and he doesn't want to leave, then he can say, no, I want to kind of re-up my contract. I don't want to leave after the seventh year, even though I'm supposed to. And so there's a procedure where he can extend his servitude to the master. And it says that if he goes through this process, he becomes that person's property forever. It says, Leolam, forever. Do you know what forever means? Not forever. No one can sell their humanity forever. It means that they go to the 49th year, to the year of the Jubilee, the Yovel year, which is in the 50th year, and then they get kicked out whether they want to stay or not. Because no one can be a slave forever. So again, that's another word which is widely misunderstood. But you need to know what the Talmud says. Okay. Now, now let's get to what the Baal Shem Tov says. Remember our question. We want to know why of all the mitzvahs in the Torah, after the Torah has been revealed at Mount Sinai, 
the ultimate inside, Parshas Isra, followed by Mishpatim, the ultimate outside, right? Why on earth are you picking the law of the Eved Ivri, the Hebrew slave, to begin with? And now listen to this. The Baal Shem Tov says, do you know what the test of whether you actually got the Torah or not is? When you are in a relationship where there's a power imbalance and you have more power than the other person, how are you treating the other person? I'm going to say that again. When you are in a relationship, and these, are, these type of relationships cut across all aspects of our life. This is not just in the work realm. This is in every aspect of our life. When you are in a relationship where there is a power imbalance and you have more power than the other person, how are you treating the other person? And that's now going to be the test after the test. You say you got the Torah? Okay, let's see. How are you behaving when you have a little bit more power than the other person? Or a little less power? You know, because sometimes when people have a little less power, they feel that they have all sorts of leniencies in what they're responsible for. And all of a sudden, you know what? You're running the show that means I am now not accountable. Right? This is your gig, right? I'm showing up. No, no, no. <laughs> That's absolutely not acceptable. From a Torah context, not acceptable. You know, there's all sorts of laws of an employee Meaning to say you've got to get to work on time, you've got to be responsible, you've got to actually be working during the hours that you're paid to work. To be an employee doesn't mean that once you show up, you've done your job. Or the responsibility of your boss is to create a beautiful environment for you. That's, that, that's not what it is. So this is, this is going deeper now. This is going deeper. And it's getting to this idea that all of life is an ongoing conversation, right? Every aspect of our life is an ongoing conversation between us and God. And that there's an inside and an outside to absolutely everything. And now, I want to end by going back to the Piyasesna Rebbe the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto. What is your soul's relationship? What is your relationship with your own body? Right? Your soul is the inside. Your body is the outside. And I just think this is such a phenomenal question to keep on thinking about. He asks us all to ask ourselves, do you see your body as an extension of your soul? In other words, ideally, your body is like the best friend of your soul, and your body is just working to do what the soul wants. So that you're a coherent 
individual. And so ultimately what we're talking about is the following. Can you transform your outside as an extension of your inside? Can you be all inside? Okay, we'll stop here. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.